there's joy in the house today. Where there's Jesus, there's joy. Man, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you're already stirring what you want to do here. I thank you that you are releasing joy in this house. To see you is to, is to have joy. And so I lift up every single person here. I, I just pray, God, for the, for the word that you have placed on my heart. I just pray for those that can only see how they fall short. But I thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so I, I just pray, God, that we would see your beauty in your word today. Holy Spirit, would you make Jesus so real to us? Would we see him like we've never seen him before? God, I pray that you truly would release, release the spirit of joy in this house, God. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to speak with you today what's entitled The Joy of Seeing Jesus. The Joy of Seeing Jesus. We are, um, we're still working in this series entitled Jesus People. The premise is simple. Intimacy with Jesus leads us to begin to look like Jesus. That's the whole idea, is that God has made a way for us to have union with him again. And we live in that deep, intimate union, which is what our souls have always longed for. And when we live in that place of intimacy, the beautiful thing is we begin to actually reflect the very life of Jesus. And this is pretty much what we've been sharing the last few weeks, but I just want to reiterate this, because this is so important. There is a major difference between moral restraint or moral reformation and spiritual transformation. There's a major, major difference. Moral reformation is about restraining and controlling the heart or or your actions or behaviors, but spiritual transformation is when the habits of your heart are so deeply changed. Moral restraint is about looking at rules and trying to conform and do them, but spiritual transformation is about looking at the beauty of Jesus. And when you gaze upon the person and the work of Christ, it so deeply changes and melts your heart that you begin to do the things that he's asked you to, not because there's a whip on your back, but because you absolutely love him. And so we've been speaking these last few weeks of just falling deeper in love with Jesus, living in intimacy. And and as it happens from this simple place, our lives begin to look like, like Christ. And as we gaze upon him, he literally begins to reproduce his life in us. And today, what we're looking at is, is joy. Man, I've been so convicted this week because joy has always been something to me, something optional, something that's kind of looked to the side. I think we all have a tendency to promote these marks of what a mature believer looks like, but then when we go into the scriptures, we see, wait a minute, there's actually some different marks that Jesus says are, are really the true ones. Joy is one of the true marks of a born-again believer, And I'm just going to share what what the Lord had showed me this week as I was praying with him. Because I want you to know this. The only difference between me and anyone else here is that the Lord has just asked me to come and, and, and share the word. That's what he's called me to do. Other than that, we're just followers of Christ in this together. And I say that because every time I come here, it's never to give a word. I first always want to receive that word for myself. It's not about giving words to anyone. I receive this word for myself. So we went through rest Man, God was speaking to me when Pastor Crystal spoke about hearing the voice of the Lord this week. I've been receiving that. And today, joy. I was spending time with the Lord just saying, God, I want to, I'm seeing what's in the word, but I see some things don't line up with my life. And so I was just praying. And I really believe this is the, the, I know this is the vision the Lord gave me for today and for this body. As I was praying, there was such a sweet time of just me and Jesus. And, and God confirmed this all weekend too with our retreat. But I saw, I saw, I had this vision. I saw this, um, it looked like a, 
almost a huge paper towel over this body, massive one, some type of cloth, and it was sagging really low <laughs> because it was heavy with liquid. And, uh, and you ever see when paper towel or, or some type of cloth, you, you can see through it pretty much when there's liquid. So I could see that the liquid was dark. I knew it was dark liquid. And I said, Lord, what is that? And as I was praying, the Lord showed me it was wine. It was wine. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the, the spirit, the spirit of joy is often equated in many ways to, to wine. Paul said, do not, be, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the spirit. The spirit has this interesting effect, and not that it makes you, you know, silly, intoxicated, but there's this beautiful truth of which it, it brings this measure of joy to you when the spirit is poured out. At Pentecost, when the spirit was poured out, the disciples began to speak in other tongues. And you remember what they were accused of? They were accused of being drunk. Clearly, yes, okay, because they were speaking languages. But these languages were known to the people that heard them. I believe that there was clear a manifestation of this incredible joy and gladness that was just uncontrollable. And people thought that they were drinking at 9 in the morning. You see, when the spirit is poured out that way, there is, there is this inexpressible joy that is released. I've been in places where they may refer to it as just being drunk in the spirit. Literally, there's just outbreaks of laughter and joy as God just pours it out. And I really believe that God wants to pour that out today. And honestly, my heart, my heart was just breaking in so many ways because I, I think, I, I just think there's so many here who uh, life, would, they would define it more as being deeply discouraged. Even when they're in the Lord, they're just bound in fear, anxiety, depression. And, uh, and I, just, I just know God wants to break that here today. The Lord says, rejoice always. You know how many times it says that? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all circumstances, give thanksgiving, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. God's will is that we would be continually rejoicing. And it would only be cruel if God has commanded us to do something that is not possible. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about turn that frown upside down. <laughs> I'm not talking about fake it until you make it. Because I know there's some in this room, I know there's some in this room have, who have walked through deep, deep hardship and tragedy. And I know that we're not exempt from that. But what I'm, what I'm telling you is that there is a joy, because the scripture says there is a joy that runs deeper than the deepest of sorrows. There is a joy that can actually coexist in your suffering. That even though things may be falling apart, you could say, it is well with my soul. So we're going to look at a scripture. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 19 to 22. John chapter 16, verses 19 through 22. I'm just going to read a few verses here. This is, I'm reading out of the ESV. This is uh, Jesus' last day here. He's about to go to the cross. It's actually, it's all part of this upper room discussion that he has with his disciples. And he's basically telling them, I'm going to be leaving you. And not only that, there's warnings of the persecution and sufferings that they will have. But in all of that, Jesus gives this incredible promise that you're going to have joy. You're going to be a joyful people. You're going to go through hard things, but you are going to have a joy that no one can take from you. And he's telling him, basically, uh, we're picking up where he's saying, in a little while, you're not going to see me. And in a little while, you will see me. And when you see me, you will rejoice. And we're going to pick up there where Jesus begins to talk to him on this. Verse 19 says this. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, speaking to his disciples, 
Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Listen to this. This is going to be so important for us today. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Say rejoice. rejoice. And no one, say no one, no one, will take your joy from you. Let me just share this to start off, the promise of joy that's in here. This is so, so important. Joy is available for every single person here, and it's available for now. Jesus gives this incredible promise. He tells his disciples, look, in a little while you're not going to see me, and then in a little while you will see me. The first thing I want to be clear on is that he was not reserving that for a few. He says, when you see me, when all of you see me, it does not matter what your life has looked like, when all of you see the resurrected Christ, the natural response is you will have joy. It's inevitable. He says, when you come and when you see me, when you see the resurrected Christ, what's going to happen is joy will be yours. My question, though, to you is, when will they see him? What was Jesus speaking about? Was Jesus saying, in the last day? Was Jesus talking about the second coming when you see me, when I, when I return? Was Jesus talking about when you get to heaven in some future distant moment? Jesus was speaking right now. He says, listen, in a little while you're not going to see me, but in a little while I will be resurrected, and you will see me, the resurrected Jesus. And when you see me now, today, joy will be yours. Let me, let me explain it this way. Do you know, this is fascinating, I believe, that the tomb of Jesus, we really we have speculation over where it is. We actually are not quite certain where the tomb of Jesus is. Now you would say, well, of course, it was so many years ago. Except the, pro- the problem is, is that we know quite well of certain prophets. We know of other fathers of the faith that came shortly after Jesus. We know exactly where their tombs are. In fact, we have pilgrimages where we go there and we have places of honor. And the question is, how in the world did we lose the tomb of Jesus? When you're a parent and you, uh, you have your kids' rooms... Does their room really matter to you? Does their socks, does their thing matter to you? Do their toys matter to you in that room? Not really, because you have the child themselves. But when your child goes away, maybe they go away to college, that room begins to have more of a meaning. And in some hard situations, if you ever lose a child, well, then that room becomes very special to you. And everything in that room becomes very special to you. But the reason why the disciples could care less about the tomb is because they had Jesus. They had the resurrected king. The tomb meant nothing because they saw the risen Jesus. You see, the Christian faith is not a matter of we don't need the room anymore. We don't need the relics anymore. We don't need to go to any of those things. Why? Because we have him. And Jesus actually gives this picture of this woman, which I'll explain more in a second, but He says, look, when this woman goes into labor and her hour has come, this baby is coming. The last time (laughs) I've been around Crystal when she gave birth twice, if I were to dare say in the middle of that, listen, can you just give me 
15 minutes, I'm really not ready, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I wouldn't be here right now, I can tell you that much. <laughs> when it's coming, it's coming. What is Jesus, what is my point? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to go away for a while, but then I'm coming back, and I am most definitely coming back, and when I come back, joy is most definitely coming. It is not coming at some future distant time in some high and by in the sky, you know, when we get to heaven. That's great, and that, that is true. But he is saying there is a joy available now when you see the resurrected Christ, when the gaze of your soul begins to see him, and you lay down your life and surrender your life to actually see him, and born again of the Spirit, the natural response is joy will be yours. And over and over in Scripture, Jesus makes this clear. And as I said before, deeply convicted because I've noticed in my life that's not, that's not always the case and with me. We're going to share maybe some reasons why. But everywhere you look, the life of Jesus, it's saturated with joy. What did the, the, uh, the, the angels say when he came to the shepherds in the field? And the angels fell on the floor and they were afraid. And the angels said, uh, don't be afraid. I bring you good news, glad tidings that will cause all people to rejoice. Do you know that the, if you were to start a public ministry, your very first appearance is quite important. The very first thing you do, you're going to want to express to the people a, a, um, a measure of what you're all about. What, what in essence, is, uh, 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 is your ministry all about? And do you know what Jesus first did in his public ministry? As important as healing and raising the, the dead, he didn't do that. His very first public miracle is he turned water into wine. The very first public miracle of Jesus is he essentially takes 150 gallons of water, turns it into wine, and takes a party to a whole nother level. Now, I'm just putting that lightly, but here's the reality. What he's saying is, I am the Lord of the feast. I am the Lord of the feast. Everything you've experienced before is nothing. I bring true joy. I bring everlasting joy. You know how the salvation is pictured? It's pictured as a wedding banquet of which we gather around with Jesus in this joyful celebration. The Christian life, the mark of a true Christian, is one that is dripping and saturated with joy, joy that is inexpressible. And how did the church start at Pentecost? We already shared that, right? The Spirit is poured out, and they're, they're accused of being drunk because there's definitely this outward expression of incredible joy. Jesus' ministry was rooted in joy. The birth of the church was rooted in joy. Do you know what it says about the initiation of a Christian's life? Jesus said it's like this. It's like a man who finds a treasure in the field. Salvation, Jesus. He says he buries it, goes back, and begins to sell all of his things because he realizes what he found is, is, is much more precious. And when he sells everything, you know what it says? He does it with joy. The kingdom of God. It says it's not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not a matter of touching things with substance. Instead, it is about righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy is so important to the kingdom, to, to the life of a believer. Literally, God's realm, God's world is one that is, is, is joy. And yes, it's not an empty hype, but I want to I be clear Joy, two of those things, peace and joy, those are felt things. Those actually have true emotion. Those have true experiences. I, we don't just say, oh, I have peace in my mind, but 
I don't actually experience it. No, no, there's actual experience of real joy that we, that we feel. And so if the joy, if Jesus' ministry was birthed in joy, if the church is birthed in joy, if the Christian life is birthed in joy, then why are we not experiencing it? Well, a few things, but number one, it's because we're not seeing him. We're not learning to behold him. We're not living intimately with him. You see, Jesus gave that whole discourse on abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. And at the end of all that, he says, I've said these things so that my joy may be in you. Not someone else's joy, not a joy, my joy will be in you. He says, and your joy may be full. When you live in intimately abiding in him, joy is yours. If joy, if, if you find yourself struggling with that, I promise you the first place to always look is intimacy. Intimacy. Come back to that sweet place of just communing with him. You know, it says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. That's what it says in Hebrews and prophesied in Isaiah. The oil of gladness. And I had this picture because when they would anoint in the Bible, they would pour the oil over your head to such a degree it would literally just saturate you. And I thought about, you know, when we take a shower and the water's running on our head, does it just pull up on our head? No, where does it go? All down our body. Jesus is the head of the church, and we are the body. Jesus has purchased an oil of gladness that as we commune with him, there is actual joy that is available that begins to reflect and radiate from our life. And so my first question I would ask you today is, what comparatively small thing are you so upset about that's keeping you from seeing what you have in Jesus? What has got you so distracted from just seeing him and his beauty? And some of you maybe here today don't even know who the Lord is, or maybe you're on the fence about who Jesus is. And if you're anything like me, you may have expressed these very words that says, look, I'm relatively young. I'm not balding yet. I've got my whole life in front of me. So I want to enjoy my life, and then I will go after Jesus down the road. And so here's, here's the deal. Look, you can make opposition. You can make a true objection to Jesus if you... If you look at the abuse that's come from the church and say, I don't know how to wrap my mind around this, we can talk about that. You can talk about why there's suffering and evil in a world with a God that has his claim to be good. Okay, we can talk about that. But if your objection to walking with Christ is because you first want to enjoy your life, you have no idea who you're turning your back on. He is the fountain of joy. It says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand is pleasures forevermore. Peter says it is a joy that is inexpressible. The thing that you're looking for is found in Jesus. The emptiness that you may feel, the dissatisfaction that you may feel is found in Jesus. He is the only one that can truly satisfy. But here's, a, here's another thing I believe the Lord gave me for, for this body today of why we may struggle with joy. And uh, I'll give it to you this way. It's, uh, I, I'm ashamed sometimes to mention this, but secretly... I'm a diehard Mets fan, and I know, I know it's not good. I don't watch them anymore because they're terrible. But look, there was a time I went through this crazy year. My parents can attest to this. 2001, it just so happened to be the year they went to the World Series, which is, it just worked out. I don't know what happened, but I didn't miss a single game with my younger brother. We watched every game from the first inning. No one does that. From the first inning 
to the end of the game, I, I mean, I knew everything. We made sure we watched every single game. They wound up going to the World Series. They lost in the end. I think it was the Yankees that year. Yeah, they lost to the Yankees. But, but I, I, I so loved the Mets. And then 2007 came, and they had one of the most epic collapses ever. 2008 came, and they pretty much did the same thing. And that's kind of been their pattern. In 2012, they did it again. And I basically said, man, never again will I give my heart to the Mets. I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm not going to let my hopes get up only to be crushed again. And I, I use that jokingly, but I, I really believe many have experienced that. It just hasn't been the Mets. <laughs> many have given their hearts to something thinking it will satisfy and bring joy to a certain man, to a certain woman, to a career. And your heart, you've been let down, you've been broken. And you have said the same thing, I will never again let that happen to me. No one will hurt me like that again. And so what happens is we close off. The only problem with that is, is that we were made, we need, God has put that in us to long for that joy. And so some of us have been broken so many times that we just said, you know what, forget that. I'm never going to let my heart ever be vulnerable again. The problem with that is you, you detach yourself and your heart, yeah, it doesn't remain, it's not broken, it remains unbroken to such an extent that it gets so hard. And so either way, either, either you're, you, you find yourself broken, giving it away, or you find your heart so hard, you literally dehumanize yourself as you just retract back to yourself. Jesus offers true joy. Some people, I believe, even as Christians, the reason why our joy is limited is because we're still afraid to be vulnerable with him. We're still afraid to truly open our hearts to him, afraid, will I be let down again? And I made a promise to myself. Maybe I've never echoed it out loud, but I made a promise internally. and said, I will never let myself feel that pain again. But I want you to know Jesus is good. God is good. And I promise you, he's the one who will never let you down. And if you don't allow yourself to feel that, your heart, your heart will harden. And his call today is to open up to him and let yourself receive the joy of the Lord. I think also... We struggle with joy. I know I do myself because we often find the source of it in the wrong place. And that's one of the things I love about this portion of scripture and that woman giving birth is it teaches us that joy, Christian joy, is quite unique. You see, what you find true beauty in is where you'll find your joy. Not for anything that you can get out of it. You just find beauty in it of itself. And this portion of scripture, let me read it again. Uh, verse 21, listen to this. It says, when a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. We're going to explain what this means in a second, but I want to share this principle that emerges from this and is seen throughout the scriptures. It says that when the baby's born, she no longer remembers her anguish. Does that mean that she no longer feels her pain, that her pain is gone? Is she in denial? Again, I remember with Crystal, and I'm sure many women could talk about this. <laughs> I certainly can't, so I'm going to be very careful in this. But, <laughs> but after, after they give birth, I mean, they still have contractions. The doctor would talk about it. There is deep pain. The body has just been through literally a war zone. But what happens is, is what happens? the doctor says, Mommy, here's your son. Here's your daughter, right? And you get that baby. And in that moment... All you can do is furiously and lovingly and joyfully see that child. 
it's not that the pain went away. It's not that you're denying that you went through anything. It's not that you're even denying that you have pain. What it is is that you found something so beautiful that it has literally removed the control of that pain over your life. It no longer has you bound anymore. You found something so precious that even though you may go through hardship, this thing is able to sustain you. The Christian joy is about relocating where you find beauty and where you find the preciousness of, of, of your heart, finding it in God, in God himself. And therefore, even circumstances can go up and down. Your joy never wavers because it is rooted in him. You see, worldly joy has to deny suffering and hardship. It has to because it's based on favorable circumstances. So I have to continually try to control my life to have favorable circumstances. And here's what happens, though. If you live like that, if that's where your joy comes, some have walked through things that, to be honest, on this side of eternity, you can never change. See, this is what the Lord showed me. There are some in this room right now who have believed the lie that unless there's a radical shift in their circumstances, they'll never be able to experience joy. Some are waiting to rejoice for some type of outwardly breakthrough or to move to a new place. When Jesus says, you see me, joy is yours. Not at a future time. It is right now. He is so precious, so beautiful that no matter what you go through, you can say in my heart, it is well with my soul. Paul said he always had sorrow. He said, but in, in that, in 2 Corinthians 10, 6, he says, yet I was always rejoicing. Christian joy allows for suffering and joy to coexist. The world can't allow that, not worldly joy. Christian joy says you can go through extreme hardship and still walk through it with joy. In fact, the scriptures say in Romans 5 and many other places, rejoice in your suffering. That's profound. You find yourself in a hard circumstance, God says you can rejoice in it. Let me be clear, not rejoice about it. God's not saying to rejoice to find pleasure in your pain. That would just be cruel. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is in the midst of your pain, you can rejoice because you have found something that is so precious and so beautiful, and it's greater than whatever you are facing in your life. In fact, not only that, The scriptures actually say that when we go through hardship and suffering, it actually enhances our joy. Let me give you an example why. How many times before you would eat dinner, your mother said, don't eat that snacks, sugar. Don't have any of that. Save your appetite for dinner, right? Because what happens is when you eat sweets, you get a sugar buzz. And so what happens is it actually tricks your body into thinking that you're satisfied and you're full. But then you don't eat dinner, which has important and essential nutrients that you need, proteins and carbohydrates and everything else. And so what happens is you eat this sugar and you say, I'm good. God allows these things to come into our life because what we do a lot of times is we have our, our, uh, we have our uh, spiritual sugars, if you will, things that we look to as, as the all in all for our satisfaction and for our joy. And God allows these things to come in so that we would see how insufficient they are And actually what it does is it drives us, it drives us to him. It actually leads us to what our soul is actually craving for, which is God himself. How many of you know Jonathan Edwards? Ever hear of Jonathan Edwards, famous American preacher? Got a woo over here? (laughs) Revivalist. He said there's a major difference. I want you to hear this uh, because it's so important. There's a major difference between a religious person and a Christian. 
He says, now outwardly, you can't tell a difference. In fact, many times they'll be sitting right in the same body, and you'll never know. He says, if you try to base it off of obedience and disobedience, you'll, you'll miss it. In fact, many times a religious person can look even more committed than a Christian. But here's what he said. He says, a Christian finds God attractive. In other words, a religious person finds God useful. A Christian finds God beautiful. My life is often categorized as finding God useful. I pray for things, I do things, and as long as I get the favorable circumstances that I want, I'm good. But the moment I don't get that, no, I'm turning my back on God. If that has been your understanding of Christianity, I want you to know you have not experienced Christian joy. Because Christian joy is centered on finding him beautiful. And no matter what goes on in our circumstances, we say, man, he is enough. Like that mother, I have found something so precious, so beautiful. It doesn't matter what I'm going through. This thing drowns it out. And so how do we grow in this joy? Well, this same portion of Scripture with this woman, this parable that Jesus gives us, actually gives us how we can grow in joy. Because many of you may be sitting here and saying, this is great, Pastor. This sounds awesome. Um, this joy sounds incredible. This beauty sounds incredible. Uh, it's not based on circumstance. That sounds incredible. But what do I do? Like, I try to be happy. I try to have joy. I just feel like I constantly fall short. Like, where, where do I go from here? And in this parable with this woman, I believe the answer is, is right here. I'm going to read it one more time so we make sure we hear this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, who is this woman is the key. And I believe that the, the, the key in this is that it says she has sorrow because her hour has come. Throughout the scriptures, especially in the Gospel of John, the idea of Jesus' hour coming is very, very important. In fact, in that example I gave you of Jesus turning water into wine, his mother Mary says, won't you do something? He says, woman, my hour has not come. He would say it over and over again in the scriptures. In fact, when he was on the cross, it says in the sixth hour while he was on the cross, darkness came over and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The hour that's being referred to here, I truly believe in my heart, it's, it's the hour of Jesus' suffering. Jesus is giving a story in which he is this woman. He is pictured as the one who is going into labor, except his labor pains is the hour that he would endure, which is far greater than anything physical. And you might ask, why would Jesus be pictured as the woman going into labor pain? Because he was going into this labor pain to produce the joy of new life. We are the child that gets to produce, uh, get to receive the joy of new life. Jesus is the one who we should have endured that hour. Those should have been our labor pains. Instead, he's saying, I'm going to go to labor for you. You will never have to experience this because I'll go for you. And when I go, in the end, a baby's going to come. The preciousness of new life, the joy of new life, and that's what you will experience so let me go for a little while because when I come back and you experience the joy of new life, you will never be the same. This, this woman, think about it. In these times, there was no epidurals. <laughs> there was no anesthetics. Again, I don't know anything about that, so I know it was very painful now. But all I'm saying is they didn't have any of that. The point is, is that for him to use this context, he's speaking about going into intense agony and pain and anguish 
even a level of torment. When the woman had childbirth, she knew in this time, she risked her very own life to produce the life of a new baby. The only way for a mother to give the baby the joy of life, she would have to willfully lay aside her joy in that moment. The only way for, for, her, to give joy, for her to give away her joy, and um, excuse me, she has to give away her joy and maybe even give away her life to bring the life of the child. In other words, Jesus Christ says, I gave my joy away to bring you joy. He literally went through labor pains for us. And we will never know what that was like because that's the point. He took it for us so that joy is available now. You say, what did he leave, though? Was it really that big of a deal? Proverbs 8 at least gives us a, this, this beautiful little picture. It says that while God was creating everything, this father and the son were together. And while they were together, it says that the son, it literally says the son, Jesus, was dancing before the father. And the father was delighting over him. The son's rejoicing over him. And both of them together rejoicing over creation as they're making it and over man. And Jesus leaves aside this glory and this, this place of just pure bliss and joy and enters in and gives that up and enters into labor so that we can receive joy. And one of the ways to experience joy is to see Jesus' laboring over your life. To see what, what you mean to him. Right? If, if you were to go away and you had a friend come to your house and they stayed and took care of everything for a weekend and when you come back, they said, hey, good news, I just want you to know I paid one of your bills. What would your response be? Kind of confused, right? What bill did you pay? Was it my 50 cents for my postage that I missed? Or did the IRS finally find out where I live? <laughs> and my back, my back taxes are due, and it's going to wipe out my resources, and my family would be on the streets. And if you found out that was it, your response would be you fall at his feet and say, thank you. You see, the only debt that could sink us has been paid for. It's paid for. Every other debt is minor. And that's why I said, what thing in comparison, this small thing, are we allowing to rob us to see what we have in Jesus, what he's made available, the promises that we have in him? He did it for us. But here's the other beautiful thing. Not only does it show us how Jesus suffered in that story, you can't miss this. It tells us why he suffered. Listen to this. Hebrews 12.2 says this about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross despising the shame. Jesus went to the cross and took on this infinite, incredible agony of labor pains for us. And it says he did it because there was a joy in the other end that was motivating him. What is that joy? A woman says that it was because of the baby. You understand, what did Jesus get out of this? What did Jesus not have? Did, did, did Jesus get accomplishment out of going through these labor pains? He doesn't need that. Did he get the Father's approval? He already had that. Did Jesus get a measure of self-esteem that he needed? He doesn't need that. What's the one thing Jesus didn't have? Us. You. Me. Jesus went through that, and he said, here's my, what my motivation was. You. You were my joy. I had you in mind. Isaiah 53 it says prophetically over Jesus, it says he will see the results of his suffering and he will be satisfied. He sees you and he says he's satisfied over that. 
Don't miss the picture of that. Jesus literally in pure bliss and glory with the Father in this place of infinite joy and sees us with nothing to offer and he, he sees where he's at and he sees us and he sees a cross standing between us and he says, he looks at you and says, you are worth it. You are worth it. And man, when I begin to just receive this, that we are his jewels, we are his treasure, we are his joy, Jesus finds his joy in us. You see, I can't just tell you, go be joyful. That will never work. What I got to tell you is see Jesus. See what he labored over you for. See how he sees you. And as you do that, your heart is so touched and so melted. It, it does such a deep interchange that we shared before where you will never be the same. Joy begins to rise up. I'll close with this because I believe this is so important. The reason why I need to see that is the last thing I think we struggle with joy is because we're so consumed with seeing how we don't measure up. It says, while we're yet still sinners, Christ died for us. What was your devotion life like when Christ died for you? What was our prayer life like when Christ died for us? What was our church attendance like? What was our tithing records like? It was nothing. We have to see when he saw us and when he entered into those labor pains for us and the fact that he said, you are worth it. I'll leave you with this. Do you know in the book of Nehemiah, worship team, you guys can come up. In the book of Nehemiah, there's this incredible story. I love how in the Old Testament, there are these glimpses of grace. And in the book of Nehemiah, if those of you are familiar with it, the Israelites had just come out of captivity. And Ezra and Nehemiah played a huge part in rebuilding the city walls and the city uh, temple. And as they came out, the walls were completed, and they brought all the people together. And as they were out and, and gathering publicly with the women and children, every single person, as they were there, it says that the priests and Ezra and Nehemiah, they began to read the law in front of the people. Now, most of these people were born in captivity. Most of them say they never even heard of God's law, God's commands, God's word before. So they begin to read the word over them. In fact, most of them didn't even know Hebrew, so priests had to go around and explain to them what they were saying. And it says, as they were hearing God's word, they were becoming more and more and more discouraged. <laughs> because what was happening is they were seeing more and more and more, here's God's standard, and man, we are way down here. And so they began to weep and to mourn. And then God does something so incredible. What's his response? He tells the priest, go out and say, stop it. Stop mourning. He says, today is a holy day. And then he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You say, how in the world could that work out like that? What he's saying is, there's a glimpse of grace in here. What he's saying, as the standard of God was revealed, and we realize how far we fall short, He's saying you can rejoice because it's a prophetic picture of how Jesus has made a way for us. That as we actually look and say, my goodness, I'm here and you're there, but you've made a way for me. The only natural response is to have joy in your heart to say, thank you, Lord, for choosing me. It does not take that much faith for me to believe that I'm jacked up and a sinner and a mess. I know those things. You know what takes faith? It's for me to see the word that say, yes, but this is what God says over you. And I choose to celebrate. I choose to rejoice when I say, I know what I look like, but God declares this. There is incredible faith in rejoicing over that. And I, I just believe in my heart that some of us, 
We punish ourselves for such a long time trying to earn joy when it's always been a free gift from God. And God is saying you can celebrate today for what Christ has done for you. Some of us think the more miserable we are, the more that God loves us. It shows how, how serious we are. Don't get me wrong, this is an incredible place for, for mourning, and I, obviously we, we talk a lot about repentance and sin, but understand this, this is God's words. You th- well, I often think holiness is wrapped up in my shoulders down, saying I'm just such a piece of garbage. And the Lord's actually saying rejoice, rejoice, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I feel some of us are so consumed with looking at how we don't measure up how we fall short when God is saying, look at what I've done for you. Do you understand this? When that happens, this is why it's so important. When that happens, you realize what you've been forgiven of. And it says, he was forgiven much, loves much. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. The reason why some of us have a hard time obeying is because we're still doing it from a place of being whipped into it and not from a place of love. And the reason why we don't know, the reason why we start with loving God is because we don't know what we've been forgiven of. And the reason why we don't know what we've been forgiven of is because we're still trying to work for what Jesus has already accomplished for us. But man, if we could just see what he's done for us and begin to rejoice in that, it will melt our heart. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Thank you for listening to Home Church's podcast. To go deeper into the message, text DEEPER to 66866. If you would like to give to this ministry, you can text the amount to 631-693-4176 or visit us at myhomechurch.org backslash give.